All right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 15. We're going to start reading in verse 10 um, this morning. Matthew chapter 15, verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered them, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone." Now, the passage continues for a few more verses, and that was listed as part of it in the e-news. If you read the e-news and if you uh, read ahead for for the sermons, we're not going to get into that yet. In fact, we're probably going to go back a little bit before we do anything. So what we're going to discover as we get into this passage, just to jump ahead a little bit, is that this is a direct parallel to something that we talked about just a few weeks ago. And in, in fact, Jesus says to the disciples, and he talks to them, and, and he says in verse 16, are you also still without understanding? And he's referencing back to Matthew chapter 5, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Matthew chapter 5 being the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus talks about how he has come to not abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And in this discussion, in this, uh, this, this question that gets brought up a lot for Jesus, as he speaks about things that seem different from what they've been taught, he says over and over, I have come to bring you something deeper. And that's essentially what he's saying in this passage. Now, you might wonder why I'm preaching on something so similar just a few weeks later, and there's a couple reasons. One is that every passage is a little different, there's a little nuance, there's different context, it answers different specific questions, but also I figure uh, if the disciples took a couple times to figure it out, then we should probably look at it a couple times as well. Now, before we really get into verses uh, 10 through 20, we're going to go back to the beginning of chapter 15, because in order to understand what Jesus is teaching about and talking about, we need to understand the context and what led up to it. Also, there's some things in these first nine verses that perhaps some of us were not aware of. Um, so so we're, we're going to get back to verses 10 through 20, but for now, let's back up a little bit. Let me read verses uh, 1 through 9 for us. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Which is a pretty <laughs> big accusation. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, 
What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So, it's no secret to anybody who's been around the church for more than 15 minutes or so that Jesus is often in opposition to the religious leaders of his day, the established religious order. He is arguing with them. Many of them reject him. In fact, it's the established religious order. Those who have studied the word of God the most, or at least so they thought, that were the least likely to believe and follow Jesus. And so one of the things that I I feel that we need to ask ourselves as we read through the Old Testament is, how is it that it was the, the people who had the least learning that often had the most faith? And while there were examples of Pharisees and religious leaders who did believe in and follow Jesus... Even among the higher elder leadership, people like Nicodemus, who we know was a follower, who, who came to Jesus in John chapter 3, and then later on was one who buried him. For the most part, those that you would expect would be the quickest to recognize the Messiah that they were looking for were often the least, And it's very easy for us to say, well, we believe in Jesus, so we are not the Pharisees. What we need to really recognize and, and be honest about is that everything that they did are all the things that that we put value on it as well. That all of the things that gave them weight and credential are the things that bring people in our current church weight and credential. We put stock in those who have studied and have degrees and learning. That if we meet someone with a doctorate in in biblical studies or in Hebrew or in theology, we are very likely to believe that that person has a greater understanding of who God is. Now, there's certainly, hopefully, obviously, nothing bad about reading or studying the Bible, but what we need to recognize is that all of the things that we see as qualifications, as evidence even, that someone is a mature, faithful follower of Jesus are things that we see in the Pharisees. And so if we don't have an answer to the question of where did they go wrong, that should be a little frightening for us, I think. Because they had so much time dedicated to studying the scriptures. They were so devoted. They were so, they were so disciplined. They did all the right things. They kept themselves out of all the wrong places. They, were, they memorized so much scripture. I talk to people all the time. I hear from people all the time. Not because I'm a pastor, just because I'm in church. That People that say, I don't know that much scripture. I have trouble memorizing scripture. Um, I can't just quote verses. And 
If that's you, just a reminder that the Pharisees could quote the whole thing, had it all memorized. Had the whole, they had the whole, all of their law, they had memorized word for word, and yet they missed Jesus. Now, and there's going to be a lot of these in this sermon, should you memorize scripture? Yes. Should you read scripture and study and understand it? Yes. Is, is scripture an amazing tool to have at your disposal from your memory in times of difficulty or struggle when you need comfort? Absolutely. But don't think for a moment that the memorization of scripture is enough because you can memorize the whole Bible and still miss the God that it points to as evidenced in the Pharisees. So that's the question that we're going to look at today in the context of our sermon from a couple weeks ago about the fulfillment of the law, which came not only in the sacrifice of Jesus, but in the giving of the Holy Spirit. How do we avoid following, falling into the same traps as the Pharisees? And this passage, as we understand it more, will tell us a lot about that. But we need to understand what Jesus is referencing. And I'll be honest, when I read through this passage this week, I had to admit to myself that I had no idea what these first seven verses were talking about, as far as background and history. Now, in order to figure that out, you can't go to our Old Testament because it isn't in there which, spoiler, is kind of the point. It's not in there. What you have to look at is the oral traditions of the Israelites, uh, something called the Mishnah. And so what we had was they had the laws that were given by Moses, and then as time passed on, they began to realize, you know, we need some clarification about what these laws mean. What exactly is considered work on the Sabbath? What do we do, especially, and this comes into play today, with making an oath and a bond and a promise and things like that? And so they began to add oral traditions. And by the time they got to Jesus' day, there was this huge non-written document of oral tradition. About 70 AD, when the temple was being destroyed or after it was destroyed, they finally wrote them down so that they would be preserved. But for thousands of years, up until this point, this oral tradition had been transmitted orally. They just said it to one another over and over and over from teacher to student until they had it memorized. Has anybody ever memorized something like that? Has anyone ever memorized a, not, a, not a song, because songs are easier, they rhyme and there's music. Have you ever memorized a speech or anything like that? Yeah, a couple. How many people that your kids can quote, how many people you can quote along with kids' movies that your kids watched, right? And how many times did you have to watch those movies before you could quote it word for word? Think about that. A lot of times, right? Now, imagine it's not dialogue, it's not narrative, it's law. It's just boring, monotonous, complicated law. And keep in mind that this law is sacred to them, and so it has to be perfect, it has to be word for word. That's what they had. In addition, 
to all of the laws of Moses. So when someone would come to a rabbi or a priest and say, I'm unsure what to do in this circumstance, please advise me, they would draw from and they would teach from that oral tradition. And so that's what we're talking about here. So Jesus says, I'll just read the the core verses again. He said, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Quoting there, of course, the Ten Commandments and other teachings throughout the Old Testament, the law of God. But you say, he's now here referencing their oral tradition, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, just for the record, and if you have quotation marks, In your Bible, you see they end after gained from me is given to God. The the Pharisees did not teach he need not honor his father, and they didn't teach that they were making void the word of God, right? You understand that part? They they had a teaching, which I'm going to explain in just a moment, but they would have taken great offense, and they did, according to the disciples, to Jesus interpreting their law this way. So here's what they had. The Pharisees added, or the, before, even before the Pharisees, the Jews added this oral tradition that said this, if you are a person that has some degree of wealth, whether it is monetary, whether it is livestock, whether it is grain or food, you can come to the temple and make an oath before the priests, before the priests, that, that whatever that is, whatever that wealth or item, whatever it is, when you die, it is given to God. Essentially, you're, you can make it in your will, so to speak, that part of your wealth goes to the temple, that goes to, goes to service in the temple, goes towards the worship of God. And if you do that, that wealth is not bound by any other contract or obligation you may have. So if you pledge all that you have to the temple and you owe another person money, and they come to collect, you are able to say with the backing of the priests, I cannot give to you out of this sum because it's promised to God. There's no obligation. Now here's the catch, which is, this is the great part about it. Uh, You can still do whatever you want to do with it. The money, the livestock, all of it, it is still yours to decide with. It doesn't have to get locked away It's just a whatever is left of it when you die goes to the temple, but for now, you're not obligated to use it for anything else. So it was a way for for people, this is like a tax loophole that we have nowadays, right? It was a loophole that allowed people to hoard wealth for themselves rather than using it to help other people, to benefit other people, to repay debts they would all of these things. They could still use it for whatever they wanted, and when they died, it went to the temple. And so what Jesus is saying here is because of that, if you were a person who was wealthy, but you didn't like your parents very much, and you knew that they were going to be in financial hardship when they get older, because all parents in those days were in financial hardship when they got older, right? Because they didn't have... They didn't have retirement funds like we do or, or all of these other things. When they stopped being able to work, they were dependent on their children to care for them. Common. 
incredibly common in those days. Parents relied on their children when they got older. So you could, as a child, have parents that were starving, unable to buy food, unable to take care of themselves, and if you promised your possessions to the temple, you were under no obligation, according to the Pharisees, to care for your parents. You could say to them legally, go ahead and starve. Nothing I have will be given to you because it's dedicated to God. And under the guise of worship, what Jesus points out in their system is that with the way you Pharisees have structured this, a man can send his parents off to starve under the guise of worship. Now, I don't know if this is the sermon that we're going to get into today, but that very trap still affects us now. That there are things that we can do that we might consider best practices in the Christian faith that we hide behind as a way to keep ourselves from just doing things we don't want to do. But that's not the sermon today, so we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. But this is what happened. Now again, the Pharisees didn't teach it in a way that said, if you promise to the temple, you don't need to honor your father and your mother. But Jesus points out the obvious end to, to this teaching. Now, we don't know how this started. And perhaps we can give the benefit of the doubt, whoever came up with this law, that they were trying to create a way to allow people to give to God and protect themselves and protect those who are generous with their wealth. But it's real easy to see how that got off track over the course of hundreds and thousands of years. And so what Jesus points out to them is that all of their rules, all of this oral tradition serves to remove them from the very law of God that they claim and strive to follow. Now, here's what I think is interesting, and if you disagree with that, at least it's important about this. I went back and I found the references in the Mishnah that, this, that Jesus is talking about. I, I found some, some commentaries that talked about the, the oral tradition that Jesus was referencing here. And so I went and I just, nothing fancy, I just got on Google <laughs> and I Googled it and I found an English translation of those passages. And I tried really hard to read them and understand them. And I didn't spend hours on it because that would have been a bit of a waste of time. But I spent a, a decent chunk of time, probably 25 minutes, with four paragraphs of text in English, in my language that I speak, trying to figure out what those rules were talking about. And I have a vague idea, but it was, it was so confusing. And I'm pretty decent at figuring things out. It was so 
convoluted. It was so specific. It was so legalistic, so legalistic that, that I just could not even wrap my brain around it. And so what I have been reflecting on this week is these Pharisees memorized those dry, confusing, just mind-numbing laws. I would have had to spend at least another hour on reading those laws just to be able to read them to you and know what I was saying. So I want you to just imagine how much time the Pharisees must have spent on that oral tradition. Hundreds, thousands probably of hours not reading the word of God, not studying the word of God, but studying, memorizing, and trying to understand their own teachings that were created by men. Now, I don't have any actual numbers on any of this, but it's not hard to imagine that they spent a whole lot more time reading, studying, discussing, and being formed by what Jesus terms the doctrines and the commandments or the commandments of men. And he, and he points it out in verse 9, and he says, you should be teaching doctrines, the doctrines of God, the pure law of God, but instead you're teaching the commandments of men. And he goes on to point out and give us this image of blind leading the blind, which this shows up everywhere, right? You hear this, this is now just a, even a secular part of our vernacular. I heard it, I don't remember where it was, somewhere this week I heard somebody use this phrase, this image of the blind leading the blind. If you think about what it's like to walk as a blind person, which uh, the closest I think most of us can come to imagining it is when you wake up in the middle of the night and it's a new moon so there's no moonlight and your room is pitch dark and you don't want to turn the light on and wake your spouse up or you don't have a light by your bed and you try to walk across the room, right? Anybody with me? See where I'm going with this so far? Right? How do you walk across the room when it's pitch dark and you can't see and you know you left a couple things out on the floor, but you can't quite remember where they are. Right? You take big steps or you take small steps? Small steps. Right? You do that little like shuffling across the floor, stepping high so you can come down on things instead of smashing your toe into them. Right? We've all smashed enough toes to know. And I've thought about it, usually in the middle of it, because it's annoying to me how long it takes, but how long it takes me to get across the bedroom when I can't see where I'm going. And as I read this passage this week, as I, be, as I got a, a deeper understanding of the context, and as I just meditated on that image of the blind leading the blind... I realized that I've always pictured that as just if you're blind, you're not sure where you're going. If you're blind, you don't see the, the hole coming up. But I realized this whole other side of it, that when you can't see where you're going, you take very small steps, you move very slowly, and you do not move in a straight line. It is the least efficient way to get from one place to another. 
And so if Jesus is giving us this metaphor of leading, you don't lead someone unless there's somewhere to go. So in this metaphor, these Pharisees, these blind leading the blind, there is somewhere they, were, they are supposed to be going. And ultimately what they're doing is they're taking very small steps while still exerting a high amount of effort to not really get anywhere and sort of go in circles until they eventually fall into a hole. And ultimately, when we get focused on learning our own teachings, when we get focused on just figuring out our understanding of things, that's what we do as well. Now, there's lots of things that we teach in our church that are not mentioned by name in the Bible. And am I suggesting that we throw all those away? Absolutely not. Because culture has changed, our world has changed. We continue to, to, to understand things in, in new language as our language develops. Develop new ways to say or make clear what is said in the word, but we have to recognize that our time and devotion, our experience in Christianity in church is not a guarantee that our eyes are open. It's not a guarantee that we will see the Messiah when he is at work. So church, I want us to take some time this week. And this is a good practice regularly in our Christian lives, but the thing is, as we add and add and add to God's word, we don't, we don't even see it. We don't even notice it. And in fact, especially if you've grown up in the church, it becomes difficult even to realize when we're believing things that didn't come from the word. Now, there are some things, again, that are not specifically mentioned in the Word of God, especially things that are new inventions. The Bible doesn't talk about how you should approach going to the movies, for example, right? Because there weren't movies. But we need to be able to identify. And again, this is what Jesus says. He doesn't say that it was wrong that they had extra teachings, he doesn't say that it was wrong that they had clarifications to what the Word of God meant. What he says is wrong is that they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. When we get into trouble is where we don't remember where the Nazarene manual stops and where the Word of God begins. Or when we don't realize what is just cultural um, just relative goodness compared to the goodness of God. I was having a conversation with Emma this morning at the breakfast table, and uh, she said something along the lines of, Daddy, are, are the dragons in this show real dragons, or are they made up? And I 
I said, well, of course they're made-up dragons. And she said, oh, okay. So those are made-up dragons, and they're different than the real dragons that used to exist. And I said, no, no, no. Dragons never existed. And she looked at me dead in the eyes with enough confidence that I dropped, <laughs> I dropped the issue and said, Daddy, dragons were real. They lived with the dinosaurs. And in that moment, I could have told her she was wrong and argued, but I realized that for a seven-year-old, the idea that, that thousands or millions of years ago, there were these gigantic animals that dwarf anything that we have on the planet and, and were just so over the top, and those are real, but dragons aren't, right, was not a discussion I wanted to have at 7.45 in the morning on a Sunday on the way to church. I recognized that she grew up hearing about dinosaurs and seeing them on TV, and she grew up hearing about dragons and seeing dragons on TV. And sure, the dragons do things like fly beyond the imagination of any physicist. Big dragons, little wings. Doesn't work. But she's a little young for that. And I also recognize that in most of the TV shows, the dinosaurs talk, which they also didn't do. So she's grown up experiencing those two in the same way and doesn't yet recognize that one is true and the other is false. Now, that's a funny story, and it's easy for those of us who understand why dragons aren't real, at least in the understanding that we have of them. It's, it's easy to, to just say, oh, that's a cute story about kids. But here's what you have to recognize, especially, especially if you were raised in church. And there's a lot of benefit. There's a a ton of benefits of being raised in church, but there's a few drawbacks, and this is one of them. If you were raised in church, you were taught things when you were four years old that are not out of Scripture that you very likely associate with the Word of God. Now, maybe that's because they get taught that way, and they often do, or maybe it isn't. But as a child, it's difficult, as is the case with Emma and the dragons, to distinguish. No one has ever taught Emma that dragons are real, but we've taught her that dinosaurs were, and they seem very similar, and they're often portrayed in a similar way, so she makes the connection. If you were raised in the church, there's a very good chance every single one of us has things stuck in our heads as the word of God that are not. And again, it doesn't mean they're bad. Some of them might be. doesn't mean they're bad, but we get into trouble when we view something as a breaking of the commandment of God when it's really just the breaking of a guideline of man. And we can't begin to understand and grasp the new covenant of God if we are still adding to our belief of what the old covenant is. If we're still adding to what we believe God is calling us to do 
and to be as people. So this is a homework sermon. This is not, a, this is not an altar call sermon. There may be some things you can figure out. There will more likely be things that need to be revealed to you. It's jumping back a month, month and a half ago. The picture sermon. So that's what I challenge you to pray this week. Say, God, reveal to me the areas in my life where I am treating as doctrine the commandments of man. And then wait for God to drop that veil. And in a moment, you will see something in your life that you were so sure was ultimate, objective truth, the command of God, the only way to properly be a Christian, and you'll begin to realize there isn't any scriptural basis for that, is there? Because the more we add on to the gospel, the cloudier the picture we paint of Jesus. This is a much bigger discussion that I'm working on finding ways to have at a later date, but this is one of the, this is one of the challenges to my generation, is that a lot of places that we look, we get a really cloudy image of Jesus. Not your fault. I'm not saying it's anybody here. A lot of it is, a lot of it is just because of our access to media and how easy it is to see things that Christians do around the world that don't look like Jesus, that are a result of this exact thing, and it makes it hard to see who God is through the haze created as we add on to his word. If we want to build the kingdom of God, We've got to stop bringing our own additions to the building. Stop bringing our own preferences, our own desires. The things that we're comfortable with just because that's how we were raised. And get back to the heart of his word. In just a moment... We're going to come and we're going to take communion together. And I think that that is a wonderful way to start this week. Back to the absolute basics of our faith. So I'd invite those who are serving to come on up. Worship team, you can come on up. Communion is a reminder we do it in remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus made. The bread reminds us of his body that was broken. The, the juice reminds us of his blood that was shed, that paid the price for our sins. But I want us also to remember alongside that today something a little bit different. Because it's really the only thing like this that we do. It's the... It's the surviving ritual. And even in the most non-liturgical, new age, informal churches, communion is always still served. 
We always do it. Christians always do it. And it is a reminder to us of what our state used to be. It's a reminder that everything used to be just symbols. Everything was just physical. It was physical sacrifices. It was physically worshiping. It was physically trying to do the right thing out of our own physical strength. Communion serves as a reminder of what we had and what we were before Jesus intervened. And now this isn't the symbol that is our religion. It's the symbol that is just an image for what our faith really is. We are worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth because of the sacrifice of Jesus. This is the absolute foundation of our faith. That we come and receive And we're not going to force it on you. We're not going to come hold it in front of you until you take it and insist. And It's got to be your choice. You've got to be willing, but it's a free gift to all. We come together. We come as the body of Christ. We come as a family. And we receive. Father, as we uh, prepare our hearts for communion, Lord, I pray that these, these tangible these tangible reminders, I pray, Lord, that you use them to draw near to us in deep and true ways. I pray, Lord, that we remember who we were before you came and you died the hopelessness of being in a condition that we cannot fix or heal ourselves. And this is a reminder that you were willing to come and fix the problems that we created that we would never be able to so that we could be unified with you. Lord, may this time draw us back to the heart of who you have called us to be. As we pray, as we study this week, Lord, reveal to us, drop the veil on the areas in our lives where we are clinging so tightly to human ideas, to human principles. And it doesn't matter how good our ideas are, if they are not, if they are not what you have called us to, we know that they will eventually bring us to ruin. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves today to your word, to the heart of who you are, to the building of your kingdom. Amen. Amen.